0: Okay, our uh, scripture reading for this morning comes from two passages in the Song of Songs. The first one's in uh, chapter 5, verses 2 to 8. And then the second one is chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. So you can follow along with me in the handout or follow along on the screen, however you choose. I'm going to be making a few uh, um, comments just to help kind of keep the speakers uh, in mind. And the bride said, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. And the beloved said, open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. And the bride thought, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. And then in chapter 7, starting in verse 1, And the beloved said, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of bath your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, looking down, looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are, how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature, stature is like that of, a, of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And the bride said, may the wine go straight to my beloved flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me.
1: Thanks, Luke. Uh, it's probably a good thing we had the kids sent out for that Bible reading. Uh, he does get a bit carried away, doesn't he? Um, good morning, everyone. My name's Ken Maxwell. Uh, if we haven't met, and uh, if we haven't met, I'd love to uh, say hello over morning tea a little bit later. I'm uh, one of the staff here. Uh, can I invite you as well to keep open uh, the Bible readings on the seats around you? Or even better, actually, if you have an app or a Bible with you to keep it open at Song of Songs, Chapter 5. We'll be looking at a few uh, different parts of that as we go. Now, I don't really exactly remember how it came to be that we ended up with me taking us through this four-week series on the Song of Songs. This is uh, week three of our four weeks. I'm hardly a sentimental romantic, and uh, my background as an engineer didn't really at all train me in romantic poetry. Uh, so, it's been a bit of a stretch. I, I don't know how we got here. I, I kind of uh, remember suggesting, suggesting uh, once to... Uh, one of the other guys who preaches here, I suggested it might be good for us to break up our Roman series a little bit, it's a pretty intense series, maybe we should do uh, just a short series on something a bit more light-hearted, I don't know, like Song of Songs or something like that. What Matt heard me say was, I would like to preach on Song of Songs, and so here we are. Uh, Matt's on holidays, by the way, and uh, hello Matt, if you're listening to this in the future. Of course, my memory is not infallible, and it's, uh, I'm not kind of saying my boss is wrong, uh, especially if he's listening in the future, hello Matt. Uh, it would be possible, I suppose, that in a moment of bravado, I said something like, well, it sounds like a good challenge to take on. After all, uh, we do want to be a church where we preach and teach on the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. Uh, We do believe what Paul says in his letter to Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that uh, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that. Was that your first thought when you heard Song of Songs read today? Well, this is useful after uh, training me in righteousness. I suspect uh, not for many of us. Uh, for myself, as I've worked on these sermons, my first thought is usually, what have I just read? And secondly, and how is that useful for our righteousness? It's a, a bit of a puzzling book, and yet, uh, in God's kindness, the last uh, three weeks, last two weeks, we've uh, found some ways the book is very helpful for us. In our first talk on this series about six months ago, before uh, the pandemic hit, Uh, we saw that this song helps us join in with a celebration. It helps us praise and thank God for giving us good things. That's one of the big themes in this book, praising God and celebrating what He's made uh, that is good in creation. Uh, That's everything good in creation we should be praising God for but of course the spotlight here is on uh, things like marriage and sexual desire and our bodies. These are good things, they're good gifts from God and this book helps us celebrate them. Uh, last week, the second thing we saw is that this book helps us know what our strong desires are there for. We have strong, de- strong desires. As we read about uh, this book of two people who strongly desire each other and have an idealised picture of romance, of sexual desire, uh, of course though, we read this as people who live in the real world, don't we? We live in a place where uh, we have problems with desire. Uh, we often have problems that come with desire, like disappointment. And so, one of the things this song is helpful for is it points us to what we truly desire at our core. What we really want is to know and to be known, to be loved and to be affirmed by our Creator. And this book helps us know that these are what our desires point us to, to that day we'll see Jesus face to face. Today, though, the third thing I think this book is helpful for, and I want to pick up, it's, it's probably the most obvious thing this is helpful for. I think this book helps us to be wise in our relationships, That is, the Song of Songs helps us know how to live well in the world that God has made. So it will help us work towards healthy relationships, especially marriages. Uh, That's where the wisdom here is most clearly focused on marriage. But the sort of wisdom we see in this book extends uh, to how we conduct ourselves in all our relationships, not just romantic ones. So we'll be speaking a little bit more about marriage uh, today than I have in previous weeks. Uh, But I still hope this series and stay will be uh, helpful for all of us, whether we're married or not. So, that's the three things we've seen so far. Next week, in our last week of the series, well, I'm just hoping in the next seven days, i come up with something else that's helpful uh, about this book, uh, or it'll be a very short sermon. So, we'll see how that goes. Uh, what we're going to do today, though, is have a look through chapters five and seven. I'll try and draw some attention to some of the big ideas and important things we see coming through. And then, what we'll see, I think, is this book leaves us with a very important question. It doesn't answer itself. It leaves us with a question, and to answer that question, like we did last week, uh, we need to step back from the book of Song of Songs and uh, see how the rest of the Bible answers that question for us. So, that's what we're doing today. Now, where we left off last week was at uh, the end of chapter 4. Uh, we left the couple, uh, they seemed to be enjoying wedded bliss, didn't they? We were told uh, at the end of the chapter, at the start of chapter 5, they were eating and drinking their fill of love. It's like they're on their honeymoon. Uh, they're having a great time and they're in wedded bliss, or something like that. Uh, the idea is, everything is perfect. Now, if you remember as well, or if you have your Bibles open in front of you and sort of flick through the Song of Songs, something I want to point out is, uh, something we've seen already, is this is a book that's full of garden imagery, garden imagery. There's fruits, there's flowers, there's uh, fountains, there's beautiful smelling spice and fruits and there's garden language all through the book. And so, as we read about a couple who seem so comfortable being vulnerable with each other, uh, that is, they are naked with each other and feel no shame and they're set in a garden it should make us think of the Garden of Eden. That is, as we read the Song of Songs, I think it's hard not to think about the Garden of Eden, as the couple here are in paradise with the perfect relationship. That's what we've seen so far, but today, as ideal as it might seem, we now have trouble in paradise. They have encountered some problems so far in, in our book, uh, but this time, instead of a problem that's external to them, that a problem they overcome together, this time, the problem is relational. There's a breakdown of some sort. So, have a look at chapter 5, it starts with a woman's account of a very troubled night uh, because her man wasn't with her. And as the scene unfolds, it seems like, well, he was supposed to be home earlier. It's almost like uh, she had been uh, thinking he'd be home for a romantic evening. She's doled herself up and uh, she's put her best robe on, and he lit a few candles and then she fell asleep waiting for him, a bit of an anticlimax. And so now when he arrives, obviously late, he's very late, there's dew certainly on his hair, he knocks on the door in verse 2 and he sort of barrages her with flattery. My sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Now, pick the old one out there, right? My sister, that's a bit strange. Um, I take it, uh, I take it. what he's saying is, um, that's a a way of saying he feels really comfortable with her, there's a relational closeness, like she has a sister. Uh, It does sound strange, doesn't it? Anyway, her response isn't exactly warm in verse 3. He comes home but she's not particularly keen about it. She says, I've taken off my robe. Do not need to put it on again? I've washed my feet, must I soil them again? Basically, I'm in bed, I'm asleep here. Do I really have to get up and let you in? It's not my problem you're home late with your wet hair, so don't make it my problem, this is on you. I think that's part of the sense of this. Which kind of strikes us, because so far, this is the same woman who's been falling over herself just to get a glimpse of her man, and now perhaps we're past the wedding day, and perhaps married life is just that little bit more mundane. It's almost as if she's a little bit indifferent to him, kind of takes him for granted a little more, at least in this moment. And yet he persists in verse 4 and eventually she relents. She has a change of heart and she gets out of bed, Uh, perhaps she puts on a fresh spray of perfume or something like that, maybe that's why there's myrrh dripping off things, it smells nice, I don't know. Uh, But she gets up, walks the door to let her beloved in. But, And here's the problem, it seems like her initial cold-ish response, uh, and maybe her delay getting to the door, uh, whatever it is, he seems to have gotten the idea that he should probably go. Maybe he leaves in a huff, we don't know, in verse 6, he's just gone. She opened the door for her beloved, but he was gone. Now, just as a kind of a side note here, if you're wondering, as I'm sure many of you are, about the sort of the very evocative and suggestive language in chapter 5 here, if you're wondering if there, there are metaphors and double entendre in play, uh, as a rule of thumb reading Song of Songs, if that's what you're un- wondering, the answer is nearly always yes. Okay, if you think it's probably sexual, it's probably sexual, would be my uh, basic comment on that. Which is to say, this is a scene that's about more than a man just wanting to get into his house. Uh, and that's probably all I need to say at that point. Uh, in any case, in any case, uh, he's gone. This moment of intimacy that has been building up, it, it vanishes we've seen so far in this book, union gets celebrated time and again, and this time, it's not, and there's a sort of a breakdown in their intimate relationship. Her heart sinks, she calls, he doesn't answer, and in desperation, she goes looking for him, which is probably not the safest thing to do uh, by yourself as a young lady after dark in Jerusalem, and sure enough, she runs into trouble. The watchmen uh, treat her roughly, and we're not sure why, we don't, we don't get told, but clearly, uh, part of what's going on here is we're seeing that the consequences for the breakdown of a relationship. And she's now vulnerable and alone, uh, and uh, she's vulnerable. So, we don't know why he was late, we're not told, and after all, this is her story, it's about her. But the f- for the first time, I think we get a bit of a glimpse uh, that this is actually also a really normal couple. We see her indifference towards, towards him, perhaps even, uh, you could say, her self-interest above him and his interests. Like, she didn't want to get out of bed for him. Now, even if he deserved to be left out in the cold, a song that celebrates intimacy we've seen so far, it shows how quickly that intimacy uh, can be interrupted. Intimacy can be interrupted by indifference in a relationship, or uh, when a desire to focus on ourselves creeps in. So, I think it might be uh, maybe a little much to say she was being selfish by not wanting to get out of bed, but... Her first thought was herself, wasn't it? Not her beloved. And even though she quickly changes correction and corrects course, uh, even still, there has been a breakdown of communication. Expectations have not been met. He disappears. He goes for a walk around the city or something like that. She gets very upset. Neither of them have their desires fulfilled. They're frustrated, and at least we know she is, and it's easy to imagine he is. And she fe- finishes feeling faint with love. I think that's probably not in a good way. There's a, there's a real angst there, I think. I our married people here today, that doesn't describe your most recent date night. Uh, it's, uh, it's pretty ordinary, isn't it? And I think we can actually probably all identify to some degree, uh, be it in our marriages or in our friendships that have uh, gone slightly astray. We can all identify with some of that, can't we? So, the couple do have a problem, they're very normal. They have a problem here in chapter 5, but of course, as we heard uh, in our reading from chapter 7... By the time they get to chapter 7, things have gone, well, they've reconciled and then a bit more, haven't they? What happens between chapters 5 and chapter 7? Relationship problem and then they're back to uh, being in Eden in chapter 7. What happens? I think that's probably the key question for us uh, in this part of the song. After all, don't we all want to know how to restore a relationship when it's broken down? Be it in a marriage or in a friendship or a family, don't we want to know how to overcome the problem of broken relationship? It's not entirely clear, actually, how they overcome this. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, we'll sort of skim through a few parts of chapters 5 and 6 with me. We're not actually really told uh, with perfect clarity how they overcome that breakdown of intimacy, but I think we have some hints scattered through, and I think those hints point us in the right direction. So, after this very disappointing event, as chapter 5 continues, the first thing you'll notice in our reading was she seeks him out as quickly as possible. She's urgent, she's desperate even, she seeks reconciliation, Uh, as quickly as possible. Now, perhaps she had to swallow her pride a little to do that. I mean, he was the one who was late, after all. Even still, she doesn't let bitterness settle in. Uh, She doesn't start recounting all the ways he's let her down in the past. After all, bitterness can be a very easy thing to wallow in for a while, uh, before seeking reconciliation. Uh, Some of you have uh, experienced this, kind of uh, the enjoyment, the perverse enjoyment of uh, holding on to a righteous bitterness, uh, you know you could go and make things up, but just, you just want to be a bit angry at them for a little bit longer. If you wait, maybe that's just me. Her, she goes straight into it. Uh, she wants to go fix it straight away. Then you see her friends, uh, in verse 9, they ask her, well, what's so good about this guy anyway? Like, why do you even like him? Now, at this point, she could uh, engage in a bit of a therapeutic cleansing and just tell her friends all the problems with her man, and how he's late and he's got wet hair again. She could do that. Instead, instead of describing the many ways he has let her down she's no longer indifferent. She breaks into a new chorus of adoration. She sings about how handsome he is, and this is verse 10 onwards, he, he's radiant and ruddy. I don't know what that means, sounds good. She goes on, she talks about his eyes, his cheeks, his lips, his sculpted arms, and his body like polished ivory, his, air, his legs like pillars of marble, as a man who doesn't skip leg day in the gym. She speaks about his hair, which is wavy and black as a raven, and I think that's a, a, quite a disappointing uh, reinforcement of unrealistic standards of male beauty, but that's, uh, that's just me. <laughs> the point is, uh, she can only see the best in him. She looks at him and she moves from indifference to admiration. She's talking about all the ways he is great, and she could, she could keep this to herself, but she says it out loud. She tells her friends, this guy's awesome. She esteems him and happily tells anyone kind of a bit strange to get to chapter 6, as her friends ask her, well, you know, this great hunk of spunk of yours, where is he? She weirdly says, oh, he's right here. He's in his garden, uh, which uh, we've seen a few ways as a way of explaining they're in a very intimate, uh, intimate time. But suddenly, again, they're united. We don't know why, we don't know how that happened and we're not told. Again, this is a song, don't be surprised by jumps around in narrative. But what we see more clearly, perhaps, in chapter 6 is something, I think, really subtle but important. I didn't notice this myself, and I'm thankful for commentators who do pick up subtle things. Uh, if you do have your Bible open, in chapter 6, verse 3, she says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. And if you're wondering, yes, uh, he's not browsing for lilies because he likes flowers, that's another way of saying he really likes being with her. So, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now, the subtle bit, uh, the bit that is worth picking up here, is this is the repeat of a line from earlier in the song, and yet, it's slightly different, ever so slightly which is, I think, why we need to take notice of it. So, last time, Tom, if you could put this up on screen for us, please. So, we read, read chapter 6, verse 3, but then, this is what we saw earlier in the song and notice the difference between the two lines? Back in chapter 2, she said, my beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Now, it's subtle, isn't it? Just the order she says things in. Back in chapter 2, her first thought is how he belongs to her. Now, that's fine, But notice how in chapter 6, her first thought is that, well, she belongs to him. It's subtle but there's a different way of thinking about the relationship. Something has developed, I think, in this relationship. They belong to each other but I think what we're seeing here is a move towards selflessness. Yeah, it's subtle and maybe I'm making a little much of this uh, but I do think this is a theme you sort of see developing in these chapters. She was indifferent, maybe not a big deal, maybe not entirely selfish, But now, as they make their way back to the paradise we read about in chapter 7, her first thought now is that she is totally his. It's a reaffirmation of their commitment to each other. Yes, he is totally hers, but that change of order in the way she thinks about that relationship, I think, shows us what a maturing and healthy relationship looks like. Despite the frustrations and the setbacks, she puts him first. And we know that he does the same. Because that's what love looks like. I think that kind of theme, it continues and it grows in chapter 7, which is now the husband's turn to say how much he admires his wife. And my goodness, uh, as Luke was reading, you sort of, uh, yeah, take a step back, don't you? It's probably the most intimate and uh, tender account of his admiration in this song, as he admires all of her. But notice how often he tells her she is beautiful or graceful. She is a work of art. I mean, yes, she has a neck like an ivory tower, that's uh, perhaps a bit strange, verse 4, but when you think about it, uh, she needs a big, strong neck because she has a head like a mountain uh, and also a nose like a tower, so I guess you do need a fair bit of structural support to keep that all all in place. My engineering time was not wasted. I gather this uh, sort of poetry, though. It, the idea is it's not uh, just transporting visual kind of ideas in. There are things that he's using here that's not just visual, uh, what I'm saying is, I don't think he's saying, "I love your massive nose and your colossal head." Although, if that's what he's saying, he's a brave man. Uh, commentators tell me that uh, the Tower of Lebanon is a tower that looks towards the enemy. It looks towards the enemy. Damascus is the capital of Syria, uh, the enemy of the day, and I think the image is there: is uh, one is uh, being alert and ready, looking out for danger. It's more like a concept than something visual. A concept, almost like, uh, yeah, the, the nose represents something about being alert, a symbol of courage against the dangers of the world. As if he's saying, uh, "I love that nothing seems to fluster you. You take the world head on, or something like that. But I don't know." Mount Carmel apparently has a striking outline. It's uh, visible and stunning uh, next to the Mediterranean Sea. And so again, he's not saying you have a massive head. Uh, it's that she's breathtaking even from miles away, or something like that. Now, that's probably as much explanation as I should be giving you about chapter 7, this part, as, I mean, as you get to verses 7 and 8, hopefully you don't need me to talk about the clusters of fruit, you can fill in the blanks yourself there, I think. But after the setback of chapter 5, they're now back to where they need to be, where they should be, sorry. Uh, Perfectly intimate, naked before each other, and feeling no shame. We're back in Eden, aren't we? So let's just just pause for a moment there and think about what this relationship has modelled for us about living wisely. For a start, it's clearly exclusive and committed. They belong to each other completely and only to each other. This is not something casual, it's not something temporary, it's marriage, they're in it together. We've seen how kindly and tenderly they speak to each other, how highly she tells him, she esteems him and how much he admires her and tells her that she's beautiful and delightful. When there was a problem, they were quick to reconcile and make up and perhaps overlooking past wrongs to do so. They keep putting the other person first. I think we've seen an increasing selflessness, selflessness built into their relationship. We also see a great relational closeness here. Uh, we've seen him call her my sister um, a number of times. It's, it sounds very weird to us. But again, the point is he's very comfortable with her, just relationally, they're, they're close. And she is with him as well. A number of times, she calls him my friend. They're not just lovers, they're friends. This kind of intimacy is built on friendship, not just desire. This kind of relationship, it wasn't standard in the ancient world, uh, where marriage was more generally functional or economic or about expanding the family. It's a far, far, um, far from standard sort of relationship in our world as well, isn't it? So, especially for our youth here today, I hope that as you see what's happening in the Song of Songs here, you see something beautiful, something good about God's plans for sex and how you see it's placed here within the context of committed marriage. Our youth here will know better than anyone the kind of way that our world is treating and pushing a gender on sex, treating it as recreational, as entirely casual, as merely biological. But above all, it's certainly about yourself fulfilling your own desires. That is, it's entirely selfish. What we have here, though, is a far more realistic picture, I think, of what's, uh, what God's design for sex is. It's, it's entirely personal, it's very personal and it's, a, it's delightful but most delightful, in fact, maybe even only delightful in a relationship where you put someone else first, not ourselves. Of course, the only way that will work, To have that delight and that uh, putting the other person's self is in commitment, in a commitment of marriage. Because a true commitment means you can be vulnerable with each other. You're stuck with each other now, so you might as well be vulnerable and love each other. So, I hope you can see, for our youth today, this song gives us a far better picture than the self-centered type of sex that our world uh, not only endorses, it celebrates. Uh, For those of us who are here today who are married... I think one of the things we probably should do, as we read this song, is to evaluate our marriages in light of this. We're looking on at an ideal relationship and, of course, uh, none of us have that, none of us have an ideal relationship, far from it. And so, it would be good, wouldn't it, to keep seeking to apply God's wisdom to our relationships, to our marriages. One way you could do that is to just reflect on a few basic questions, such as, is our intimacy growing in our marriage? Or have we been growing indifferent or taking one another for granted? Is there increasing friendship within this marriage? Or for personal kind of reflection, how would your spouse score you out of 10 on how tenderly you have affirmed them this last week? Some good things to, uh, to chat and to reflect on, and more um, so, in the coming weeks, we'll be advertising a great resource to help our married people uh, to invest in our marriages. We want to keep working on our intimacy and our friendship and our communication, those sorts of things, uh, and keep an eye out for this resource, we'll be letting you know all about it. Uh, It would be a great thing for our married people to keep committing to applying God's wisdom to our marriages. But of course, as we read on here about an ideal relationship, like we have here in Song of Songs, uh, for many here today, and for many different reasons, it's just difficult to hear about this and to read about it. Like we talked about last week, we all live in the real world. We all know our desires are not satisfied, relationships don't get reconciled sometimes, intimacy, friendship and so on, those things are difficult, Uh, sometimes they're fleeting and uh, quite often they're lost. We live in the real world and it's tough. Actually, the way the Bible talks about it is we live in the fallen world, which I think takes us uh, to the big idea for all of us today, Which is, how does this song help us live wisely in a fallen world? Well, what I want to do is pick up, I think, one of the most striking verses in chapter 7. This is verse 10. There in front of you. In verse 10, chapter 7, she says, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. His desire is for me. What's striking about that is the word desire. Uh, It's a Hebrew word that's actually quite uncommon, uh, uncommonly used in the Bible at least. It's the same word that gets used uh, in the most famous curse of all, a curse on relationships, actually. I'll get this uh, up on screen as well, if Tom wouldn't mind, thanks. Uh, This is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I'll put it up there next to what she says in the song in verse 10. What we're reading here is the curse um, that uh, is passed down to Eve and all who follow her, uh, the things that the women are subject to as a consequence of the fall. Your desire will be for your husbands, and he will rule over you. Now, whatever the exact nature of desire is in that verse in Genesis, it's clearly negative, isn't it? Perhaps it's a kind of uh, dominating desire, a control, a desire for control, or perhaps it's a desire for the husband's complete, undivided attention, which sounds okay, until you realise, well, his desires are warped. He doesn't want to give you his full attention, he wants to rule you, he wants dominance. So, this is a curse on intimacy, isn't it? It curses our ability to want the best in someone else, want the best for them. In fact, it seems to be about selfishness, uh, which we all know can express itself in all kinds of ways in our marriages. Not just marriage, this is the root problem for all our relational problems, whether it be friends, family, people here at church. uh, We are all tainted by this desire, the twisting of our desires uh, due to sin, due to our selfishness. See, our default setting, in- includes the inability to truly give ourselves completely to someone else. We just want to control. The curse, the punishment for rejecting God's order and His rule, well, that's the, co- the cause of so much pain and grief and frustration. Astoundingly, though, astoundingly, chapter 7 of the song, she says, yes, I'm yours. And now, He desires her. That's the reversal of that great curse from Genesis, because here the desire is in the positive, isn't it? They desire to give themselves to each other, just like before the fall. So whether we're married or not, whether our marriage is going well or not, surely the most important question we can ask at this point is, how does that curse get undone? How can our relationships, be it marriage or more broadly, our friendships, how can they be really good and healthy and, and intimate? How does this curse get reversed? How do you end up saying what she does in chapter 7? How do we end up back in Eden? Well, the answer the book gives, uh, kind of in part, the answer the book gives in part is that it's through love. It's through that kind of selfless love we've seen, they modelling a love that quickly forgives, that takes initiative to reconcile, a love that builds up and doesn't tear down, a love that has friendship built into it. But that's as far as the book goes. And I think it leaves us tantalisingly sort of frustrated by not giving us more answer on that. I mean, telling each other, telling you to just love each other a bit more is a bit too vague. It doesn't actually help. Uh, we all know as well that just trying more to love each other, it doesn't really work. We still live with the curse of Genesis 3, don't we? Trying harder doesn't fix the problem. So what we need to do with this book is, uh, is have that question in front of our mind and then we step back and have a, a look at what the rest of the Bible has to say about it. Because the question that the Song of Song raises, how do we fix a curse? The question it raises, it has a surprising answer. We can't. And in fact, we don't. But God does. In fact, God has. Because the kind of love that's needed to break that curse can only come from God. Only He has a love that truly forgives, that moves towards reconciliation, not counting our past against us. God's love is one that builds up. It has friendship built into it. And, of course, He has a love that is selfless. After all, that's the story of Jesus' love for His his people, which is uh, why you have printed today on your uh, handout there a passage from Ephesians chapter 5. At the heart of the good news about Jesus is God's love for His people. It's a selfless love, isn't it? You think about God Himself taking on flesh, stepping into our world experiencing all the pain and broken relationships that we put up with. I mean, Jesus lived with really selfish people. They hated Him and actually killed Him, didn't they? He lived with it all. And His death on the cross ultimately frees us from the curse of death and sin, and it frees us from the curse of Genesis 3. Ephesians 5 kind of unpacks this a little bit. The idea being, as we live under Jesus' rule and under His blessing, as we live with Jesus as Lord, that's actually how we move away from selfishness. Living with Jesus as Lord, as Lord is how we can truly love other people. It's a good news that the song hints at, but what Ephesians 5 actually really unpacks and explains more for us. Now, you'd be glad to know uh, today is not the day for a whole second sermon on Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I'll print it there for you to take away and, and read through the week. It'd uh, be good to carefully read through and think and have a look at, see uh, how Paul is applying the wisdom of the gospel to our relationships. How does Paul apply the wisdom of the gospel to our relationships? So, I'll put it to you, that Ephesians 5, I think, is the layer we need to understand how the Song of Songs works. Because the song ultimately points us to the marriage between Christ and His Church. For today, though, let me just mention a couple of important things about Ephesians 5. Like, how in verse 21, we are all urged to submit to one another, in the Church, out of reverence for Christ. Submission is the language of being selfless, not selfish. And we do that because we know that what Christ has done for us. He's undone the curse. And so, in all our relationships, we can put each other first. That's what Christ has done for us. Now, that's the crucial context uh, for what Paul says next about wives submitting to their husbands. And I understand there's a passage that has some uh, great complexity in it. So, I want to say today, the Song of Songs gives us a beautiful picture of what that submission looks like. Submission involves admiration and a desire to selflessly seek the good of her husband, just as the husband does for his wife. It's a beautiful picture, and that means this passage in Ephesians 5 must not be used as a weapon by husbands who want to dominate and have control. That would actually be reinforcing the curse from Genesis 3 that the Gospel undoes. Paul is not saying here, wives must do what husbands want. And it must not be used by husbands uh, to coerce coerce or force wives into doing their will. Instead, as you read on, you get to verse 25, husbands are to have a radical, sacrificial love for their wives. They are to give up their own lives for their wife, just as Christ did for us. That's probably not literally dying for our wives, uh, but uh, day by day, a selfless dying to our selfishness, seeking her good, not our own. Again, we have this modelled for us in the Song of Songs, and it's a beautiful picture of a husband who doesn't dominate his wife, he adores her, he admires her, and he gives himself to her. He even belongs to her. Now, all of this is only possible because of what Jesus has already done for us. And so, whether we're married or not, Jesus is the means by which we are freed from the curse of selfishness. The basic logic is if we know that Jesus has died for me, if he's bought my life with his blood, well, what value do I place on my own life and having control of it anymore? Knowing the gospel helps us be selfless, which means the gospel transforms how we love. As we apply that sort of logic of the gospel, Jesus on the cross dying for me, as we apply that to the day to day details of our life, it enables us to love each other selflessly, our friends, our family, our colleagues. It's only living out the good news that we can move beyond selfishness and it's there we find, find real friendship and real intimacy. Now, if you're here today as someone who's exploring who Jesus is, maybe it's the first time you've come to church for a while uh, and you're trying to work out what difference Jesus makes in, in your life... Welcome, uh, so great to have you with us. I suspect uh, having some relationship advice in the form of ancient romantic poetry wasn't what you're expecting this morning. Uh, again, thanks for being with us and bearing with me today. I hope it's at the very least been slightly amusing at points. But I also hope you can see uh, something very appealing about Jesus, about what His self-sacrificial love means for our lives, and I really hope that as you keep looking into Jesus and what He means, I hope you will experience for yourself and your own relationships uh, just what a great impact He can make. For now, would you all join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great wisdom. We thank you that you have made us to be in relationship with you and with each other. We thank you you for your greater wisdom that even despite our sin and our selfishness, thank you that in your wisdom you saw fit to release us from the curse of sin. We thank you for your great love and the way that you have shown such great sacrifice, selflessness. You've modelled for us how to do this in our own lives and we ask you'd help us us grow in being selfless. And Please help us do this as we grow in our admiration and our love and our reverence for Jesus. We pray today you'd help us be people who always look for ways to serve and to love others as our first thought. We ask this so that we can bring you praise and glory. Amen.